Hi there. Welcome to a special fall season of 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. Conversations at the JCC are made possible by Zabars and Zabars.com. I'm Jason Blitman from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas, and on today's episode, I talk to principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, David Krauss. David and I talk about the new podcast that he hosts, Speaking Soundly, where David is in conversation with today's premier professional performing artists. David has performed as a guest principal trumpet with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Boston Symphony Orchestra, and New York Philharmonic, as well as recorded for film and television and played on several Broadway shows. David is a highly sought-after instructor at the Juilliard School, Manhattan School of Music, Manus School of Music, Aspen Music Festival and School, and other top conservatories and music festivals throughout the United States. Please enjoy David Krauss. Was music in the family? Where did your love of music come from? Um, neither of my parents were professional musicians. Uh, we had no no musicians, no uh, artists, really in, in the in the family. Uh, my parents, grandparents, going back, there was always music in the house. My dad was an audiophile. He loved. He had a beautiful stereo equipment and uh, and uh, and loved listening to music i still remember him making tapes remember like making you know you get the good cassette tapes mm-hmm. from there was a place called like crazy eddie like by me on long island it's like you go and you buy the expensive cassette tapes which were like 13.99 instead of like the the you know 7.99 and, and you'd you'd write in very carefully in the little jewel box exactly what the titles are so uh and he had such he was an engineer, so he had meticulous penmanship, and I still have many of those tapes. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, classical, jazz, and opera was was always being played in, in 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 the house. Both my parents played the piano, so there was a, a piano and a stereo and a love of music that was that was always there. So it it was always encouraged. That's very cool. And was it something that yeah. you always found? You gravitated toward, you know. I know that some some people are like, "Oh, well, my parents always had this in the house or that in the house, and I wanted nothing to do with it." But for you, was it? Did it kind of just come easily? Were it... Yeah, I think that you know, when when you're a kid, it's like you grab onto that thing that either mm-hmm. you have a circle of friends or the thing that you're good. So it's like, you know, if, if you're an athlete or you're this or you're that, music seemed the trumpet in particular seemed to be my thing. So. Um, nothing else was like I, I mean i i remember you know people say when people ask when did you decide you want to be a musician you know the joking answer is when i got my sat scores back <laughs> uh, because you know juilliard didn't require that and uh well i had to find something i was good at but yeah it, that was that was my go-to thing that i found my people there in mm-hmm. high school i was already going to juilliard pre-college so while i had some friends in high school you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a popular kid there, but at Juilliard pre-college on Saturday, I had my people. It was like sure. the, the the high school group that I kind of wanted uh, throughout high school. So um, yeah, I fell into, into the, I think as a kid, again, it's just, that's where your friends are. So that's what you do. And I was good at that. And th- that I kind of just stuck with the course there. 
When did you pick up a trumpet for the first time? You said a trumpet specifically or trumpet in particular. What, you know, for me, when I was a, when I was in middle school, you know, we were required to take band or PE and obviously I took band. And so, <laughs> and, uh, I ended up with a trombone because I had long arms. I wanted to play the trumpet, but my arms were longer, so they told me I needed to play the trombone. And I think it was for all of six months, and that was the extent of it. But was it a... Did you choose it? What was that moment for you? I wish it was a better... I wish I remember, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was uh, just like you said, and what a great thing to... And kind of an awful thing that it's like a dated sentence to say, well when I was in grade school, you had to pick an instrument, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is, is that's, it's not there anymore. So many places that's, that's really sad, but I went to a great school system on Long Island and you had to pick an instrument. And, uh, I think it was fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade. I picked the trumpet. I don't know why, probably looking back on it, I was a chubby kid and they were like, okay, you know, you probably can blow a lot. Right, you have like, breath, you know, you have breath support. Like, I, <laughs> Your lungs I are bigger. I don't know. It was, it was, it was probably that. Um, looking back on it, it stuck. And then um, I, I played the trumpet. I was probably just mediocre or like everybody else uh, through grade school. But then I remember since my parents were avid opera listeners and they went to the Met Opera, which where, where, where I ended up, this was around the time of my bar mitzvah. Like, so it's like before it's probably like age, like 11, 11 going on 12, they saw that you could audition for the Met Opera children's chorus. So there are some operas that have kids in it and a chorus of children or maybe a solo child. Um, so I auditioned for that, got in and then like twice a week, my mom would drive me in from Long Island to the city, to the Met, and we'd rehearse. And if you were lucky enough, you you got in performances. So I I sang. That was more my thing, especially around around the time of my bar mitzvah. Like all my relatives were like, oh, you know, this this Saturday, you know, David's going to be up there singing and, you know, he sings at the opera. So he's going to have this amazing voice. I didn't have an amazing voice. Like I could sing like any kid can sing. And, right. you know, and when you uh, put 40 but, of them in a group, they sound OK. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't. I remember feeling a little apprehensive, like, oh, my God, are they expecting to hear Pavarotti? And it's mm-hmm. like my voice is breaking. And I'm like, you know, it's like it was it was fine. But uh, that was just, you know. Just learning a, a bar mitzvah, like getting up there and, and learning a, a Torah portion just to do is stressful enough, much less the anxiety that, you know, your aunt thinks you're going to sound like, you know, Jose Carreras or something. <laughs> that, that, that's like an added burden that I that's didn't need. That's so funny. Setting you up for failure with really high expectations and unrealistic expectations because you were right. a b- boy going through puberty. <laughs> right, Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, no, music was always um, my thing. That's so cool. And and so cool that you have spent really your whole life at the Met. Does it feel that way? I, well, I'll tell you, after a long performance, it does feel like a lifetime. <laughs> you know, that's for sure. sure. But yeah, it feels like a long time, especially now, because I was young when I joined and I looked younger th- than I was back then. And I was the kid. And it, I felt like the kid and I was the kid and I was among the younger people there. Now I'm not the kid. 
And now there are kids coming in straight from school who are like 22 years old, 21 years old. They look like babies. Um, and it's just funny to all of a sudden feel like, wow, there, there's, there's been, there's been some time that's passed. So, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's been, um, been a while there. Yeah. But I still, I still kind of feel like a kid, but for some yeah, reason, yeah, I that's mean, good. 20, over, over, tw- yeah, over 20 years has passed, but wow. it's, it's been a good, um, as a source of employment, forget about even artistically, um, as a source of employment up until we were furloughed for a year and a half during the pandemic. Uh, up until that, it was a really, I mean, I raised four kids in, in Manhattan. Um, and so as far as being an employed musician, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that security because I yeah. freelanced before that, you know, when I was still in school and just out of school, I was playing on Broadway and doing just playing with different orchestras around the city uh, and trying to fill up my date book as much as I could. Then all of a sudden having a regular job that I didn't have to hustle and sweat, you know, month to month. Um, I mean, as I think as a musician, you're always sweating month to month, but um, this really as, as a job, I've been really fortunate. Sure. I mean, 20 years of employment doing the thing that you have been passionate about your whole life. Like, that's a very cool thing. I feel very lucky in, in a very similar way. What does the principal trumpet at the Met mean? When it, when you break, when it, when it boils down to it, what, is, what, what is your job description? I think, um, to be a, a principal trumpet or a principal of any instrument, um, simply put, it's, you know, if there's four or five trumpets in a given orchestra, there's, uh, you know, a first chair, a second chair, a third chair, a fourth chair, that kind of thing. So the principal player is the, the primary player, the first player. In European orchestras, they call it the, the solo solo trumpet. You know, it's like whoever is playing the first part. And oftentimes that first part has, well, most times it has, you know, the leading role. It has the solos. I think that everybody falls into their roles. And when you're, whether you're within the section playing a supporting role um, or playing the leading role, I think like any relationship, that supportive role is the more difficult one. Um, because you not only have to do your part very well, you also have to have one ear on what you're latching on to. So the, that person's primary goal is to make the whole section sound great and oftentimes just to make the principal player shine. That's the more difficult role, I think. For my role as, as a principal player, I consider my role to show up, be prepared, and sound pretty. You know, uh, there's there's really no place to hide, especially when you play the trumpet. Uh huh. They can hear you down the block. No kidding. Right. Right. I think my my primary goal is to make sure that I'm doing my job. So I've done all the work. So I'm not stressed when I get to the performance. Because if I'm scrambling and if I don't know something, if I we call it a cack, if you cack a note, that'd be Mm. like you know if your voice breaks or or something, or you know I guess it'd be the theatrical equivalent of just like like not knowing you're like just saying like line (laughs) having to be fed a line right. So if that happened if that happens with a trumpet, there's no place to hide. That's my primary concern is just to make sure that I'm taking care of my own business so the trumpet can can just be a, a vital part of the orchestra. But um, 
but just because it's the first part does not by any stretch of the imagination mean it's the most difficult. No, sure. I, I think it would be a lousy, I think it would be an absolutely lousy second trumpet player hmm. because, you know, especially all these years of, of, of getting the solo bow or getting the good parts to play or always being heard. There's something very rewarding with that. And I know that in my own personality, I love that to be like a great section player um, that often doesn't get those solos, that doesn't get that solo bow, that might do an outstanding job every single night and the other person gets the the attention. I know myself well enough. And if my wife were here, she would be laughing just because she, she yeah, like I, I don't think I could deal with that. And I'm really fortunate um, at, at the Met and most places that I play to, to encounter just uh, these amazing uh, supportive role players. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a craft and it, it says more about the person than, than the musician. That's very cool. And I hope you share that with them. I'm sure you do. I mean, yeah, we're, we're all friends. We, you know, some things, uh, I don't know, it's corny. Like if you come out and say that, somehow it sounds really phony. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a collegial thing that happens that, you know, we, we all have mutual respect for each other. Yeah. Most times. Just for my own synonymous, uh, it's uh, principle is synonymous with first chair in terms of Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a principal flute. There's a principal, sure, you know, sure, sure. All, all the things. Are there like other duties and responsibilities outside of playing that you have? Just this is just total ignorant. You know, is it like, oh, yeah, no, no. you have to file the paperwork no. for everybody? I'm sure you don't, but you know, is there a. Yeah, yeah no, I, I don't. I don't. It, it's pretty much just a, a musical, musical responsibility. I, I, I think, um, you know, for as long as I've been playing, and this is something, you know, I have four kids, mm-hmm. they're all grown, and I think this is just something that that goes for both and just goes for being a human being i think i don't like when i'm playing i really never look down the line and say hey guys like i'm gonna play this note short can can you guys do that or we're gonna do this can can you guys be with me on this rather than um talking about it i do my best to have that come out in my playing so they can just use their ear they trust me i trust them and we don't have to talk about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I've been in other places where I've gotten instruction like that and I'm trying to support someone and they're like, you know, make sure to listen to me here and and we're going to do this here. Well, I mean, it's not organic and that becomes very difficult. And it's the same kind of thing w- with my kids. I, you know, I can tell them that they should be doing X, Y, or Z, but really they're going to do what they see me doing. Or I mean, they're grown now, but when they were kids they're not going to all of a sudden eat vegetables or read a book. if they Just see because me. you told them to. Yeah. Or right. if they see me, you know, watching Netflix and eating, eating, you know, cheese, it's, it's sure. not going to happen. Yeah. Just kind of, uh, being the example musically, uh, seems to, that's, that's my main duty. I, I think. Yeah. Well, and it also goes back to what you were just saying. I think so much of it is, to, is too about trust, you know, like you trust your, fellow trumpeters to be there and to listen and they trust you to lead. We're also professional. I mean, we're also getting paid to do this. Right. So it's, it's part of the job, yeah. right? So uh, it's, um, if you're not pulling your weight, if you're not showing up prepared, if you're not doing these things, it's, you know, right. it's, it's, you could lose your job. your job description. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I see, yeah, you could. I say that, you know, 
anecdotally in the sense of if you're not doing your job, whatever, no, it's, it's whatever your job is, it's a reality. You know, right, you can lose your job. Sure. Um, yeah, 100%. I'm curious, outside of music, uh, and I guess running, interests <laughs> interest that perhaps led you to speaking soundly or or what do you, because I think it's so cool so many yeah I think uh, there's that stereotype of musicians who are kind of quiet or who are introverted and who you know they like are with their people and that's the click that they're a part of but I feel like to really come outside of yourself and and create something like speaking soundly you need to be a certain person and have certain interests to want to go there? Well, first of all, it came about, the podcast came about during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially, the motivation from it was for a year and a half, I'm not performing. And sure, I missed performing. But you know, I could practice at home. And we made these online videos through whatever. And the first time back performing for an audience, we did a, a, a Mahler symphony. And it was it was amazing just playing. And that, that's a vital part. But the other part that I really missed that I didn't realize that I missed was hanging out with musicians mm. and being around artists and, and just, just being with my people. I knew enough people personally. Uh, Wynton Marsalis has been a, a, a teacher and a mentor of mine since I'm you know, 12 years old. And uh, so, you know, he agreed to do it. This uh, pianist, Emmanuel Axe, we have a house up at Tanglewood that I spent the pandemic in and he lives up the block. And, and uh, so we would take walks together and he agreed to do it. So I knew enough people that um, I could get it off the ground. And in these conversations with these people, I really enjoyed just hearing about what performance meant to them mm-hmm. and what, um, and at the time, you know, of course, during the pandemic, everybody was craving everything. So everybody was really eager just to talk about what it is to perform. But the interesting part to me was I know of the things that I deal with on a daily basis every time I pick up the trumpet, both physically and emotionally and creatively. Like, I get that, but the process of hearing that from uber-famous musicians and people that maybe most people haven't heard of, but but I have a tremendous amount of respect for, which I've talked to other musicians like that on, on the podcast, just to hear what they go through, you know, from, from the simple questions like Joyce DiDonato. She's one of the most famous opera singers in the world. She commands a stage, and when I'm sitting there in the pit and I'm watching her, you know, I have a trumpet. I have something to, to I have an instrument. She has nothing. She has her voice. Well, that, which is her own I'm, instrument. I know, but that's like, that's it. She has yeah. nothing to hold on to. She, right. I could buy a, I could buy a fancy trumpet that maybe yeah. makes me sound too better. <laughs> She's stuck with what she has. And yeah. then on top of that, I'm sitting there in, uh, you know, in a tuxedo, looking at music, having a conductor tell me exactly when to play. It's all like very managed. And I have a small part to do. (laughs) Yeah, sitting, you know, comfortable. Maybe I have a bottle of water by my side. She's, meanwhile, her and these opera singers are up there in costume, in these heavy scratchy wigs, under the lights, not reading music, everything's memorized. Having to tap into these emotional qualities that, you know, an actor would have a hard time getting into and executing some of the most death-defying musical roles ever created Mm -hmm. and having to do that night after night um, on a stage 
that the Met seats 4,000 people mm-hmm. with no microphones. I was just going to say, know, with no microphones. Y- yeah. So, yeah. like, to me, I'm a musician who've been doing this all my life, but I'm looking up at these people with awe. And it turns out the questions that I wonder about, a lot of people wonder about. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's been really inspiring talking um, talking to people just you know, finding out where their head is, how they're able to do the things that they can do. And just um, talking to another artist is awesome. It's just fun. So it's been an ongoing project and it's something that's been really fun to do and it's been really well received so far. So um, I'm looking forward to doing, we already have our second season mostly done. And uh, uh, yeah, it seems like uh, as I'm demonstrating People enjoy talking about the process and, and sure. about themselves a sure. lot. So yeah, yeah. Have, been have you been surprised by anything? Or is there? A, I'm sure you've been surprised by a lot of things. Is there something in particular that has stood out to you? You know, there there are moments that really take me by surprise. Because, um, for example, I just spoke with a tuba player, and I've known who this guy. We all kind of know who we mm-hmm. all are like all, all the people that are playing in different orchestras, even though we haven't met, um, sure. we all know, especially in the brass section, like we all kind of have radar of who's where I, I knew this guy was a tuba player. Uh, and then in researching it, I found out there was a, he wrote a book, a memoir, and then he, there was a documentary on him. And I was like, I got to talk to this guy and finding out here's a guy that was raised in West Baltimore. His name's Richard Anton White. And he was born, his mother was uh, just a tragic start. Basically, essentially, he was homeless up until the time he was five years old, walking through the streets of West Baltimore in the snow with, with no shoes. And he worked his way up. You know, then he, his life changed and he got adopted by, uh, by this couple. And then he becomes the first African-American tubist ever to have a doctorate degree. And then he gets an orchestra job. And so just going from hearing that somebody's just a, a tuba player to finding out the stories behind I mean that's an extreme version of it but sure but this was a person you were aware of yeah 100 professionally and so yeah, yeah yeah um so that's fascinating we're just finding out little things like Emmanuel Axe knows you know super famous pianist knows how many steps there are in the subway platform between Lincoln Center and 86th Street and and like just because he says he said he's he's a, like ever so slightly OCD about it. He likes to step off on the on the so just knowing these little things mm-hmm. about uh, these performers that I hold so high um, artistically is just interesting. They're, everybody's a person, yeah. <laughs> so we tend to we tend to um, put these people up on a pedestal and think that they can do no wrong. But to hear that an opera singer gets butterflies and gets nervous mm-hmm. before uh, Isabel Leonard. I spoke with her, She's another f- really famous opera singer. She, I asked her, does she get nervous? She goes, well, only when I'm singing a language that I don't really know. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God, that's right. They have to like act and sing in a language that, so she knows all the romantic language, the romance languages, but she had to learn German. So then I'm thinking, and then she, she was talking about singing in German and how stressful that is. And I'm like, yeah, that's stressful. Um, because when I'm hearing her, she sounds German. Like I, I don't, I don't <laughs> right. even think about it. But right. there's a process behind that. So just hearing, hearing the the process behind 
these great artists um, is really inspiring. I think whether you're a musician or not, but it's, it's really inspiring to me. What's your little thing? You said you learn little things about everybody. What's if someone if someone was listening to a David Krause episode, what would what would they say? Oh wow, I didn't who would have thought about David Krause? Yeah, well, I mean I mean, do you have a couple hours to unpack this? I mean, I, I think for me, um, the, the, kind of the demons in my head as I'm playing mm. um, tend to be uh, I was always a better musician than I was a trumpet player. So there are trumpet players that are natural born, that can, you know, since they were young, can play really high, really fast, really loud. Um, and there's a lot of people like that, just naturally gifted at the instrument. Um, I wasn't. I, I've had to work at it from day one, hmm. and I continue to work at it. If I don't practice, it goes away in a split second but I've always had a nice sound and a good musical background, wh whatever it is. But it's always, the, the music has always come really easily to me. But the trumpet playing has always been a struggle. And um, although I, I do fine, you know, I, uh, I, I get the job done. But in my head, as I'm playing, it's like I still defer back to, you know, when I'm about to play a solo, part of me is like, Remember when you were in sixth grade and you sucked at the trumpet? Like, I'm here. Like, you're, you haven't, you're the same person. These are the same lips. Um, so it's just like everything I play is like this neurosis going out of my head. And this is even after 20-something years of doing it professionally at the Met. Right. Um, yeah, I have these, uh, these mental arguments. <laughs> and with the trumpet, a lot of times, especially as an operatic trumpet player, there's a lot of time to sit there and think. An opera, an average opera is three and a half, three and a half hours, whereas a symphony concert might be an hour 45 in total. Like one opera is like three and a half hours, but the long, like a symphony could be like 40 minutes. So just the time span spent staring, listening, and you could have 20, 30, 40 minutes before a huge solo just to psych yourself out of it. Mm. Um, so I'm amazed listening to these performers or athletes or whatever, people that have to just step up and do it. How are, what are they thinking to themselves? Because I'm just a ball of negative thoughts that I'm just trying to distance myself from. Um, so that's, that's what's, and I think that in talking to, hearing a little bit that these other artists suffer a little bit of that, is encouraging, mm -hmm. um, but I, it's still something that I'm uh, still something that I'm working on. I think it's really inspiring to hear that at even the level you're at, you're still having these feelings. I have always had a passion for theater for young audiences, so professionals performing for young people and introducing young people to theater. But I also have always believed that those projects can be just as accessible for adults and there is a great playwright and teacher who has been said uh, or who's been quoted saying that something about we've we were all children once and so there's all we can always relate to 
you know, joy and wonder and curiosity. And there's, that is always still inside of us. And I think, you know, you talking about your, you you will always be that kid in sixth grade who couldn't hit that note or whatever. You know, we all have those things. You know, we all right. had that moment where we flubbed the line or where we tripped on the stairs or where we did that thing. And so like forever you're anxious about walking upstairs again. You know, it's just like a nice thing to remember. Like we were all children once. We all had to persevere to get to where we are today. Right, Um, right. And so I think, you know, especially in your own podcast series, specifically speaking to artists and musicians, it dials it in a little bit more specifically. Um, Right. And we all have that. And it's kind of both cool and terrible at the same time. It is. And some people, uh, you know, are, are just natural Performers. I mean, yeah. I even see it in my own kids. Like, to, one of my children is a cellist, and he went to Juilliard like I did. He just graduated, and he's out there the same. You know, he he's doing he's doing what I did. You know, and try you know auditioning for jobs. My other daughter's at NYU, and I, like I go and see she does these uh, improv comedy uh, nights, and mm-hmm. and I go there, and I and I I'm in awe of both of them at both. Uh, both and they both do it way better than me, um, just in terms of tapping into performance. So mm-hmm. really, I think you can get inspiration um, I- inspiration anywhere. I've listened to a handful of episodes, and they're so great, and I think really fun to hear these oh, perspectives. You. Um, you know, because I think in an orchestra, especially, you know, you become one. You're like a pointillist painting. You know, your your kind of job is to really become this bigger picture as these individuals. And so I think to your right. point, you know, everyone is a person. It's an easy thing to forget when you really see an entire group of people making up this one thing. And so getting these individual stories has been really cool. Um, one of the ones that I listened to was with Spencer Rubin, who, for our listeners, he is a freshman at Juilliard and has 1.5 million followers on TikTok and is is a, a clarinetist. Is that right? Uh, he's an oboe. He's, an, he's oboist. an oboist. Close. An oboist. It looks very similar, Sorry. but yeah, he's an oboist. What is as a as a person who's been in your position for as long as you've been in it and who's had a long history of classical music and i imagine you have you have um combated some versions of adversity because of your interest in classical music what does it feel like to see this kid blowing up on social media making classical music cool it's 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 amazing and you know i have to say that um he, you know when i talked to him at first even my own my my youngest daughter she goes, what are you doing today? I go, I'm going to go talk to this kid, Spencer Rubin. She goes, Spencer Rubin? Are you kidding? And she doesn't play the oboe or, you know, uh-huh. she, she plays the violin. But I was just amazed. I mean, I guess she's one of the 1.5 million people <laughs> that, 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 that follow. But, um, yeah, no, it, it doesn't um, – it's amazing that the following that he has. Um, but it's not shocking after talking to him because uh, in the podcast he talks about – Every morning he makes his bed and he has to make sure he's practicing four hours before homework and then he has to do this and then he likes to, you know. And then so he has to like, make his reads. Yeah, and then make reads for hours. So, <laughs> I mean, this this guy is like, whatever he chooses to do, yeah. it's, it's just going to be, you know, he, he's going to do it. So I think one thing that he does tap into is the fact that 
classical musicians are seen as infallible and just these uh, highbrow people that do the Sunday Times crossword and read the, the Atlantic and the New Yorker and, uh, and only listen to classical music. And quite frankly, that, that hurts the brand. Yeah, you know, and and now through social media and through people like like Spencer and and, and organizations are, are are getting it. I mean, now the Met has an Instagram, the New York Philharmonic has you know Instagram and all mm-hmm. these things. I, they're getting it, um, but it's a it's a sudden shift that's happening within the classical world, and I think that all of the impetus goes towards showing the that other side, showing the backstage, showing yeah. that. We are we're, we're we're people we're 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 not devoid of humor. Yeah, we're, uh, you know you this, can this be kind of young thing. and fun and enjoy classical music. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the, you know, I was, I was talking to someone else uh, just the other day um, at one of the future guests on my on my show, and we were talking about how the fact that if you were to say classical music means all classical music. That's like saying, what kind of food, like, what are you hungry for? And you go like, well, food, I can go for some food. Right. Well, what, what kind of, you know, classical music is literally everything. Uh, so um, when you say classical music, you could be talking about Baroque music. You could be talking about romantic music. You can be talking about something that's composed right now uh, in any genre uh, within that really broad umbrella. So the idea that classical music is something serious that it's only a beethoven symphony that it's only meant to be enjoyed with three three thousand people and you're not supposed to clap at certain times it's mm. kind of a drag but mm-hmm. through kids like spencer uh who's a you know a really promising musician as well it's been really fascinating um to to see his take and it's 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 inspiring to see the success and um any numbers of people turning toward this classical music is, is going to be good. So yeah, no, he's yeah. really doing it a, a huge service. That's very cool. Uh, yeah. and another episode that I listened to was Joseph Alessi, who is yeah. kind of on the, on the flip side, you know, he's been in the business for so many years, had a bit of a scare in terms of his hearing and you, right. it, it made me start to think about like, oh, you think about surgeons and having insurance on their hands, right? But when you're a musician, it's like, oh, it's hands and your lungs and your diaphragm and your lips and your your breath right. support and all of the things that can, and your ears, I mean, God, your ears can really change who you are and really take you out of the game uh, in the way it could an athlete. You know, and so for him to think like, wow, this could be the end of my career, but it's okay. I had a really long and wonderful career is really um, an interesting thing to to think about, too. It is true. And that, um, uh, you know, I should say that, <clears throat> he, well, he had a this shingles attack that led to Bell's palsy, which all of a sudden, this is like the best, this is like the Daniel Day-Lewis of mm. trombone play. Like, he's like, when you think of like the best actor of a generation or whatever, like, that's him for the, you know, for, for the trombone, ask any trombone player. So then all of a sudden, not a gradual thing, all of a sudden he wakes up, he can't play a note. Yeah. You know, just that thinking about that is frightening. I mean, he fought back and, and he's, he's better than he was before. So it, you know, it's, it turns out good, but this idea of the thing that you're really passionate about 
and the thing that you identify with all of a sudden not being there is a really scary prospect, I think, for anybody. Yeah. You know, I see it also in my students and in my own children that so much of the effort is just to make a mark, to either get, a, they're, they're all pursuing uh, artistic lives and just the pursuit of that to get the audition, to get the part, to get whatever it is, mm-hmm. is such a competition, it's such a, uh, a rat race. But unlike other professions, you're being judged on, on artistic merit as opposed to you know a resume or whatever it is, or maybe an interview. So much of it is just like getting the thing, getting the thing, like, will I get a job? Will I get this audition? I got in the semis for this, I got called back for this. I got, mm-hmm. um, so much of it is is there that you don't really, even stop and think about what happens, you know, if, if I can't do the thing anymore. And I Mm -hmm. certainly hadn't. And, um, I think for, uh, that episode talking with Joe, um, really made me think for a a minute about, you know, what happens if that were to go. And, um, I think even, even after the, the, the many decades I've been playing the trumpet, still part of me is like still racing to, to, uh, to, to do more. Um, but, uh, just the idea of, of maybe starting to get other things in my life is a good thing. So that, that was something very positive for me that came out of listening to that episode. And it was a very scary episode for any, any brass player to all of a sudden just like wake up and not be able to play a note. Same thing with, I was talking with Winton Marsalis and he talks about, and I remember when this happened, he had a a growth within his lip Mm. and he had to have it excised, surgically taken out. Like, you know, we're talking about the greatest trumpet player on the face of the earth, all of a sudden has to go under the knife. um, On his lips. uh, On his, literally on his lip. Right. So it'd be like Michael Jordan having like, you know, like a finger excised. Right. right. You know, you wonder uh, at that moment, like who you are as a person, what you are without your, your superpower. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot to think about there. So it's been really, uh, really interesting conversations. And at times, a little uncomfortable and scary because it's bringing mm. up these things that I certainly haven't contended with. So before I let you go, we one of the questions I've been asking people is, you know, in theater, we have a dramatic question. The dramatic question is the, the thing that is the engine that takes us through the story. Like, will Dorothy find home? Right? What is... What is David Krause's dramatic question? What's your engine? What gets you up in the morning? What's the thing that keeps you moving? That like maybe is not necessarily uh, unattainable, but it's that like we're, we got to keep moving toward it. What what do we think that is? Well, I think as it pertains to music or least, anything. Uh, well, uh, you, I, <laughs> um, I don't want to turn this into a therapy session, so I'll stick, <laughs> I'll stick with music. But I, I think all of my the, interviews my, do. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think uh, my daily driver is the thing that leads me to the practice room every day, Mm. which essentially is, you know, I don't practice because it's fun. Practicing is a drag to me. It just is. I'd rather be doing other things. Um, But the thing that leads me to the practice room is to someday have my trumpet disappear when I'm playing. Like Mm. that's what, when I listen to great artists whether it's trumpet players or singers or when I watch, you know, when you watch a great actor, like they're gone. 
and whoever they're portraying is there. Um, mm. Or sometimes when you're playing a piece of music, uh, you know, everything disappears and you're listening to Bach and all of a sudden it's 1685. It's like you're time traveling, listening to this music. So my goal, it happens every once in a while that I'm playing and everything is firing on all cylinders. My chops feel great. My head isn't working against me and the circumstances are just right. And it's like floating. Hmm. It's just like this out of body, great experience. And you're communicating with people without talking. And it's, you couldn't imagine a more perfect way to, to human. Yeah. And so those things happen because of the work that I have to put in. Because like I said, I'm not as talented as I wish I was um, physically on the trumpet. So I have to do that work. Um, So I guess, will I ever um, attain that goal permanently? Or is it always going to be elusive? And I think that's the thing that when I wake up every morning, it's like, I mean, lately it's been okay, can I get my six miles in? Can I go on my long run? Or can I do, you know, I've been regimented for this marathon, but once that's over, I'll go back uh, more to um, every day when I wake up. I mean, of course, I think about my wife and my, <laughs> no, and my family of course, and all of course. that. But, but, but um, yeah. in terms of scheduling my day, it's like, okay, I have, to, I have a rehearsal, I have a performance at night, I have six hours to teach. When am I going to practice? Mm-hmm. Because if that goes away, those moments of, really making a beautiful sound with other people that becomes more difficult so uh yeah that's the yeah. crux of my issue Just i love will that this, will, yeah will I, this trumpet disappear will someday? david krauss's trumpet disappear and i have to say the idea of like will it disappear and get out of your head so that you can run for, and, and prep for your marathon and right. will, will it disappear so you're not thinking about work so you can have a good work-life balance? Will it disappear right. when you're no longer with us? And will you have left a legacy that you are potentially hoping? You know what? I think it means a lot of things and it's very moving to the creative person in my right. mind. Um, it's, it's very deep. And I think we unpacked something really great here and good therapy session. I think so. <laughs> are you familiar with Twyla Tharp's The Creative Habit? No, but I mean, I'm, of course, I'm familiar with Twyla. With Twyla. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I'll send it. I'll send you an email about it. It's basically. Oh, please do. It's like her uh, method daily to like get her into her rehearsal studio, and it's like she lights her alarm goes off and she lights a match and lights the candle and does her yoga and does the thing and hails the cab and gets in the cab to then do the thing, right? And if she doesn't light the match, she doesn't get to her studio. Oh, wow. And so, so the creative habit of it all, when you said, you know, where, how will I get to practice is what, that's what right. it made me think of. And it really- That could be very helpful. Cause yeah. I'm literally the exact opposite of that. <laughs> it's just my primary goal in the, is just coffee. And then anything that happens after that, you know, is is a bonus. Thanks, David. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. All right. right. Great talking to you. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. David's podcast, Speaking Soundly, is available wherever you get your podcasts. In the episode, I mentioned a quote from a playwright who talks about how we were all young once, and I wanted to share the actual quote. It's from playwright and director Stephen Dietz, and he says... 
Our youth is the very oldest part of us. We have carried it longer, had the chance to know it more fully than any self we have concocted in the interim. When we write for children, we are writing for our most fundamental selves. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our editor is Matt Temkin with music written and performed by Peril Wolf. The last episode of our fall season will be released in two weeks. And if you like what you heard, check out our previous episodes, write us a review, and make sure to subscribe so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops. Until next time. Thank you.